Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but... (laughs) It has come to my attention that some men bring women to the Guilty Feminist show on a first or second date to impress her and inadvertently are using my podcast to get laid. And I'm okay with it because I feel while they're here, they might learn something. I'm a feminist, but... um, Even though I've got really strong arms, the further I try and throw something, the harder it just goes down. (laughs) Do you feel that's a reflection on all of womanhood? I just feel like as a feminist, I should have just learned the skill to use that force because there's no shortage of force. (laughs) Like sometimes it leaves a dent in the floor. That could be your New Year's resolution then, Jess. Javelin lessons. Yep. I'll buy them for you for a Christmas present. Get in. I'm a feminist. (laughs) But I have mixed feelings about the fact that I can give myself a better, longer, and more complex orgasm than any man ever. (laughs) feminist but even though I have rewritten a line of the popular Christmas song fairy tale of New York to avoid using a disgusting homophobic slur I am still going to sing slut in an act of of feminist reclaiming that word and because nothing else scans (laughs) I'm a feminist But earlier this week, my friend Anna took a picture of me at the Choose Love shop, signing an autograph, which she then wanted to put on her Instagram feed to encourage people to choose love and go and shop for help refugees. And she showed it to me and I said, not in a million years, I look like such a moon face. And she said, no, Deborah, you look approachable and warm. I said, I don't want to look approachable and warm. I want to look sexy and sultry. Are we ready to get on with the show? to the guilty feminist yuletide anti-fascist extravaganza!
Today we are doing a guilty feminist yuletide anti-fascist extravaganza. Um, it's Christmas, but that means it's a good time to fight fascism. <laughs> We've decided. I think it is, though. I think it is because you're sort of full of Christmas cheer and spirit and you're feeling generous and it sort of starts making you think about other people. So this is Christmas and what have you done? <laughs> I've always felt that was a bit passive-aggressive. <laughs> Do you feel like that when you hear the show? All right, John Lennon, more than you this year. <laughs> another year over, another year down. Yes, I know, I've not done enough. The part that gets me is when he gets to, war is over if you want it. Fuck, I haven't wanted it enough. So that's designed to make women feel guilty because we're the ones taking that on, you know that. And then he gets to the black and the white, the yellow and red ones. And I'm like, you know Yoko Ono wrote that song? She co-wrote that song. That is also now stricken from the lyrics. We will be singing it later tonight, and we'll try and sing it less passively, aggressively than John Lennon clearly fucking meant it. <laughs> so it's our anti-fascist extravaganza. Now, the reason it's our anti-fascist extravaganza is it cannot have escaped your notice that the far right is sweeping across Europe. You cannot have escaped your notice because it was on the front page of The Guardian two weeks ago. There was a whole thing about the polls. One of our guests tonight was telling us that two refugees were sent back to a border uh, in Greece naked, and they froze to death. There are children at the American border with numbers on their wrists. One died of dehydration. And the things that are being said in the Australian parliament are just extraordinary. Turns a phrase like the final solution. There are two concentration camps offshore for refugees, including children. And recently the head doctor was arrested and taken away because she was saying you cannot, you cannot keep people in these conditions just because it's offshore. So my question is, Who's going to fight fascism this time? Because the timing is almost on the nose. Just as everyone who can really remember the Second World War is dying, it's like, oh, that didn't really happen, and we set the clock again. But last time, Britain, America, Australia, a lot of the countries that allied up to fight fascism are drawing up the drawbridges or electing people who clearly have a fascist agenda, even if the constitution currently won't allow fascist activity. So who, who, who is it? Who's going to stop it? And my idea is this, it's gotta be us. Because the thing is, in the 1930s, they rounded up journalists, but we're all journalists now, all of us. Anyone who has a Twitter account or could get one, anyone who has an Instagram account or could get one is a journalist and could start changing the way the world is seen by those around them. We've got to be more clever than we're being at the moment, where we're all sitting in bubbles and sharing things that essentially most people don't want to read. But I reckon we can do it. But what we have to recognise is that it is possible that we are now living in the time between Hitler's a madman, it'll never happen, he's not dangerous because he's so out there, and the time where it's too dangerous to speak out because you feel you'll be shot. And that period, we don't know how long that period is or if we're living in that period now, but in case we are, I don't want to sit back and do nothing. If in five years' time they come, I want to say I've done everything I possibly could. But I also think there's enough of us. There's enough of us and we're smart enough and we're mobilised enough and we have a voice now. We all have a voice 
that we can actually collectively stop it. I've only really realised my power in the last couple of years. Five years ago, I actually wasn't that politicised. I said I was, but I didn't really do anything. Mostly, I just went for brunch and complained to my friends that I wasn't getting far enough in comedy. (laughs) We talked about our sex lives, and we shared things that we were buying, and we were massive consumers. And I think the thing that is going to change us now from people who go on marches, but then what do we do? Into people that stop fascism collectively and globally, us, here, the people that start to spread this word and change things. What we have to realize is when we look at those pictures of people being liberated from concentration camps at the end of the Holocaust, we see those people and they seem surprised to be alive, bald, skeletal, almost soulless. And we have to remember, if they're wearing a Star of David, that was just one chapter in their life. And for many people, it was the last chapter in their life. But for some people, it wasn't. It was just one chapter in their life. Before that time, they were like the Jewish people in our community now. They were that university lecturer who you had a crush on. They were that nice couple who run the bagel shop. They were that guy in a suit getting on the tube and pushing his way in front of you. They were that doctor without borders. They were David Schwimmer. They were Barbara Streisand. (laughs) That's who they were. And when you see people being liberated from camps or photographed in camps wearing pink triangles, it's really easy to look at them and think they look like zombies almost. They're people you feel pity for. But to forget that actually... That was one chapter of their life, for some their last, but for many not. And they were that cool guy in the nightclub who admired your outfit, that person at work you have the best in-jokes with, the quiet IT guy, the nice couple who run the bagel shop. They were Han Gadsby. They were the queer eye guys. That's who they used to be in a previous chapter. They had unrequited crushes. They had bad dates. They complained about things. They sweated the small stuff. They didn't like the way their coffee was served and they sent it back. They were us. And if this next wave of fascism comes, if we sit here and watch the polls go further and further and further right, if we watch Putin and Bolsonaro and Trump form alliances, they are coming for the people in our neighborhood. They're coming for that nice couple who run the bagel shop. They're coming for our dentists, for our Instagram influencers. And they're coming for some of us. So now is the time to act. Now is the time to act. Because things are changing. You all heard the story about Jim Acosta. Um, He was in the White House and he kept on asking Trump questions. There was some tussle over a microphone and then he was banned from the press room. Then the judge said, no, he has to be let back in. And so Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, okay, he can come back in, but now there has to be new rules, new rules for decorum. Journalists can't ask more than one question. Journalists have to sit down if the president says he won't answer their questions. Trump said on Twitter that he would like to have a state-run press. Right? And there were Jim Acosta's in 1930s Germany. There was a man called Fritz Gerlich, He was a journalist. He wasn't Jewish, but he spoke out against anti-Semitism, and he was sent to Dachau. What year do you reckon he was sent to Dachau? Any guesses? Most people I've asked have said 1939 or 1941. Earlier. Earlier. How much earlier do you reckon? 
33. He was sent to Dachau in 33. Most people don't even know Dachau was a concentration camp in 33, but it was where agitators, journalists, people who spoke out, the Jim Acostas were sent. He died in 34 in what was called the Long Night of the Knives, where people who disagreed with Hitler publicly were killed. We don't know how much time we've got, but we do know they can't round up all the journalists this time. And the other thing we know is, while there might not be any obvious allies, it's not like we can expect Canada and New Zealand to form a supergroup. <laughs> they don't, they've got some very nice-looking prime ministers, but <laughs> they don't have the heft. They don't have it. I don't want to be negative, but let's be clear, there are limits to even Justin Trudeau's charms. <laughs> it's not going to push fascism back. I mean, maybe. Um, but here's the thing. What you can't have fascism without, you can't, and governments won't try and implement it because they need the ground to be right. You can't have it without mass othering, without spreading the message that is soaked in and believed all the brown people, all the refugees, all the Jews, all the black people, all the trans people, all the gay people. You can't have fascism without that. It's not possible. And you can't have it without mass apathy because the reality is most people... <laughs> in Nazi-occupied countries turned away. They just looked away because it was too difficult to look at. And I feel that now. I scroll past pictures of Yemen because it's too hard to look at. It's difficult to look at everything that's going on right now. Does anybody else feel it's difficult to look at everything? It is difficult to look at everything. The vast, vast majority of our populations are not white supremacists. Actually, a very small percentage of our populations are white supremacists and serious misogynists and homophobes and transphobes. And a very small percentage of our population would get on a train and go to Calais and work with refugees or sort of go out of their way to do some act of kindness. Most people go on Instagram to look at contouring and cats. <laughs> and I think we spend so much of our time arguing with people on the far right and not realizing there aren't that many of them. What we need to do is motivate and politicize all of those people in the middle, and we only need a chunky minority. You only need enough people that if they came into your street to round up all the brown people or all the refugees or all the gay people or whoever they wanted to round up, there would be enough of us to come out to the street and hold hands and say, if you're going to take them, you have to take all of us. They won't do it if they know that's the case. So we need to politicize a chunky minority of people who are not politicized. And we won't do it with sad, scary pictures. And we won't do it by shouting at people on Twitter that they're not good enough. My question to you and my question for this evening is what's our carpool karaoke? <laughs> Seriously, what's the carpool karaoke that fights fascism? What are the things that are fun to look at? How can we make our tribe more joyful? How can we make our tribe a more fun place to be? How can we make people realize that politics is everything? That the way that they live, that the money that they earn, that the freedom that they leave the house with, that the fact that they don't have a curfew, that's politics. All the good stuff we have is politics, is freedoms that people have fought for. So what we need to do is individualize people, individualize people. If, you, if enough of us had like a little story on our Instagram of like making cupcakes with a trans person, or interviewing a refugee about something they weren't expert on. It becomes impossible for people to go, all trans people are scary, all refugees are sad. It becomes impossible. So the two things I want us to think about tonight are joy. 
How do we make our tribe a joyful place? But then how do we make it an active place where we get people to understand that they could be coming for all of us? So we need to gang together now. We need to be an army, but a joyful, delightful army that fights apathy and fights the generalization and the othering that the tabloids would have us believe. Because the thing is, we are stronger than the tabloids. We are mightier than the tabloids. We are more numerous than the tabloids. There's one Sun newspaper. There's one Daily Mail. How many of us are here in this auditorium tonight? 500? But we've got to be louder. We've got to get busier. And we've got to get more proactive, more actively compassionate. So, are you with me? do stand up at the beginning of this show and this isn't stand up but in a way I didn't really want to make this part funny I wanted to say tonight we're going to have a very good time uh, mostly because of other people who are funny <laughs> bringing on I've booked some of your favorite stand-ups who I wanted here together with me at the end of the year some of your favorite co-hosts of the guilty feminists because I wanted you to see as many of them as possible at the end of the year I want them to come on and be their joyful, wonderful, funny selves and tell you the stories they want to tell you. And then we've booked two really amazing guests to talk quite seriously and also good-naturedly, wholeheartedly, warmly, amusingly about what's next for us, what we will do in 2019 to turn this oil tanker around. I truly believe we can do it. And so that I can feel much better next year when I hear John Lennon go, so this is Christmas. What have you fucking done? Are we ready to take on the next year? Are you ready for the Guilty Feminist? Are you ready for one of your favourite stand-up comedians in the world? Then please put your hands together and make extraordinary Guilty Feminist welcoming noises for the wonderful Jessica foster King. nice. Hi guys, that's nice. Fucking that was heavy, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a feminist, but I can't even spell fascism. <laughs> um, I, the only, I'm an optimist as well, though, so like, I just count myself like thankful that at least I can say it right. <laughs> Imagine if it was the other way around and I was like, oh, Dan with fascism. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about fascism because it's fucking easy to um, write stand-up about the rise of the alt-right. Not! Um, but I, <laughs> no, I'm glad we're talking about it because actually I've got some really first-hand experience. Um, I don't know if you know it, but I actually live with a fascist. <laughs> it's a three-year-old man. <laughs> I've created. He's not just a... I mean, he is a dictator. The other day, he stole a Bobby Brown orange lipstick from my makeup bag, a gift from my friend Candice, <laughs> smeared it all around his face so he even looked like an orange dictator. <laughs> uh, he is. He's not the only ist that he is. He's a sexist. Um, he's a lookist. Um, just learned that one the other day. He's both of those combined. The other day, I was about to get in the bath with him and I know that's not how you should behave with most fascists. <laughs> um, 
he's very cute and incapable of washing himself and it saves water, so it's planetist, <laughs> at least. I was about to get in the bath with him and he pointed at my muff and went, you get in now, mummy, but not with that. <laughs> Excuse me? He went, your tuppence is too furry. to have a bloody word, mate, we do. And also, I mean, it's just truculent. I, I genuinely, honestly, my partner and I laugh all the time about this. Is this what it's like for Melania to, like, live with someone this moody? Um, it's like a truculent toddler, just like the President of the United States. He's, um, I mean, I'm 35. It's the first time in my whole life I've ever not been the moodiest person in my house. <laughs> and I'm quite a card-carrying moody person. I'm quite sort of, my hands are up. Don't mind telling you guys, I'm very moody. On a spectrum of naught to 10, quite close to 10 at moody. I hate injustice and being peckish. <laughs> but now I realize, having got to know him, that me going around all these years saying that I'm moody, turns out actually I've been very arrogant. <laughs> and this is a professional. This is what a real mood looks like. He's taken it to a completely another level. He completely changes colour. He goes a sort of pinky, purpley puce. It's sort of colour you'd go if you're Caucasian and jogging on a winter's day in the upper thigh. <laughs> he makes a noise that's very... It's not human. It's like someone's trapped a hippo and then a fox has began to make love to that. <laughs> it's like a kind of like... <laughs> very much like he's possessed. His favourite position for it, face down on the floor, arms and legs by his side, occasionally arching his back like a fish has just realised it's on land. So the, the full effect is more like a... Um, the more you try and intervene, the closer a loved one you are, the more violent the response will be. So if you are its mum, it will go for the eyes. I do get like that. But I don't get like that just because one of my beans wasn't on my toast. <laughs> and it's nice to finally live with someone whose mental health problems put mine in context. <laughs> also, I'm so honest and cruel about him on stage that I feel like I almost have to explicitly say, don't worry, I do love him. <laughs> I couldn't love him more. It's not a kind of nice, manageable haze of love I expected with parenthood. It's more kind of like, oh, even though you're behaving horribly, I would die for you or kill with my hands. <laughs> Slightly less sort of rational and enjoyable as a type of love. <laughs> even though I love him to bits, it just makes it all the more confusing that there are days where he is objectively the worst possible company I could imagine. <laughs> it's like living with a mad dictator. It genuinely is. So there are days where... So the Monday before last, let's talk about that, uh, <laughs> as an example. Uh, you get up in the morning and you're like, all right, darling, good morning. It's not morning, it's lunchtime. <laughs> okay, no problem. Well, should, tell you what, should, we, should we start with some breakfast? No, I don't want to. I'm going on an adventure. Anyway, you're not my friend. Daddy's my best friend. Okay, cool. Yeah, no problem. That's absolutely fine. All right. Okay, no problem. Well, should we get those gym jams off then anyway? No, I hate gym jams. Don't touch me. You're not my friend. I want to hurt you. <laughs> and then it begins on his favourite topic. Can I have a cake? Can I have a cake? Can I have a cake? Give me a cake. Can I have a cake? Can I have a cake? Can I have a cake? Give me a cake. Give me a cake. What do you, it's not even how you talk, is it? That's not how you ask me for things. Give me a cake right now. 
Excuse me, that is definitely not how we ask for things. Give me a cake, please. Now I've got to give you a fucking cake. <laughs> it's not even 8am. You give them, <laughs> give them the cake, that goes in. Can I have another cake? 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 Can I have another cake right now, please? Can I have another cake? Can I have another cake? Can I have another cake right now, please? Can I have another cake? Can I have one more cake? Can I have another cake right now, please? Can I have another... Okay, the thing is, darling, it's nice to learn sometimes that when we want a nice thing and then we get the nice thing, we have to go, ooh, wasn't that nice thing nice? Doesn't mean we instantly have to have another four. Can I have four cakes? Can I have four cakes? Can I have four cakes? Can I have four cakes right now? Can I have four cakes right now, please? Can I have four cakes right now, please? Can I have four cakes right now, please? This went on so incessantly for the whole of the Monday before last that at one point, I I honestly said to him, do you know what? You can have whatever you want. <laughs> and I shit you not, he went, I don't want whatever I want. <laughs> People are very sweet. They say, oh, you know, he's such a three-nager. <laughs> he's, he's just such a three-nager. I don't know, I think that's too cute. We should be honest and admit that sometimes he's a thrunt. Have an amazing night. The wonderful Jessica Foscue, everybody! Keep that applause going for the amazing Sinclair V! Hi. Hi. Hi! Um, on my way here, I got a text from my son. He wrote to my husband and me, and he's gone on a school trip, so I thought he was going to write and say, we've arrived. And the text, when I opened it, it said, till Thursday, lads. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck is lads? I mean, mom has three letters. It takes less time to type. What is lads? So I wrote to my husband, like, why is he saying lads? And my husband said, it is the nicest thing he said to us all week. Leave it alone. <laughs> so I did. Um, yeah, so the topic, you know, broadly for this uh, episode is fascism. So let me tell you about this detox I'm on. <laughs> it is truly a fascist detox, you know? You know, no offense to fascism, but this detox <laughs> is just absolutely... I don't know, anyone here done like a really intense diet detox thing? Yeah, okay. Anyone done keto? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you about mine. First of all, the mistake I made is I went to the doctor and I said to the doctor, I'm not feeling good. It's been two years. My stomach is not very good. So they did these tests. You mustn't do that because when you go to the doctor and they do the tests, then you can see. And then you can't be like, yeah, every time I eat, I fart. It's fine. Like, no. <laughs> then you've got results. You've got to, you're like, oh God. And then, so he was like, you have all these parasites. And I was like, dude, I'm Indian, like they're standard. Don't, you know, don't get excited. And he said, no, no, we gotta get rid of them. So here's the detox, you guys. No sugar, no caffeine, no alcohol, no grains, no fruit, except berries and grapefruit. A grapefruit is a giant fucking lemon. It's not a fruit. Right? And no dairy. And it's Christmas. By the way, last week, believe it or not, I learned a word for Christmas, which I love, which is crimbo. So, happy crimbo. But no happy crimbo for me, because I'm on this detox. Now, the first three days were really easy, because I just cried straight up. Just, 
I just woke up crying, cried the whole day, went to sleep crying, woke up. It was like, oh, okay, so this is what we're in, you know? And it was like tears, neurofen, tears, neurofen, tears, neurofen. It was great, headaches. But all that went away and I still had this thing and it's for two months. I finished one month last week and like I am feeling much more energetic and I'm so clear-headed and I feel strong, but not one single person has said my skin looks good. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. You know, that. I want to walk into a room, I want a standing ovation for what my skin looks like. But no, people are like, yeah, you kind of look the same. I have so few friends. Because if you were my friend and you said that to me, you are dead to me. First thing. Second thing is, there's something very sinister that happens to your mind when you do these diets. Those of you who've done them, did you find out like your mood was flat the whole time? Right? It's just sinister because... I made chocolate mousse using an avocado. <laughs> it had raw cocoa and all these like really healthy things, but it was fundamentally an avocado, <laughs> right? So I made it and I tasted it and I was like, yeah, this tastes like an avocado trying to be a chocolate mousse. So then I called over my youngest child, she's very young and she has a very Sort of, she has an undiluted palate when it comes to sugar because she has only ever eaten sugar. <laughs> She's never had to deal with some half-ass pretend sugar like stevia. You know, she's just eaten sugar. So I thought, if this kid tastes this and says, what is this shit? I mean, not in that language, but you know. <laughs> if she says, what is that shit? I'll be slightly impressed, but generally very concerned. Anyway, um, then I'll know that, you know, I'm kidding myself. So I gave her some and she tasted it and she said, oh, mama, that kind of tastes like chocolate mousse. So I took this bowl and I was like, fine, I'm fucking eating this. I mean, <laughs> it tastes like chocolate mousse. And as I was eating it, I thought, look at this. Look how sinister the psychology becomes around these detox diets, because I have now allowed a six or seven-year-old child, whatever, like she's like that age roughly, um, <laughs> a six or seven-year-old child to convince me that this tastes like chocolate mousse, even though I know it is an avocado. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, what next? Is this how cannibalism starts? <laughs> is this what happens? And you know, Brexit is coming, I need to know. <laughs> the worst thing about this detox diet is very good for my mind, terrible for my kids' mental health, because I'm awful. Uh, I am so mean. And I try not to be, but it hasn't worked so far. It's been a month. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you an example. I was watching TV with my youngest. The, I don't know where the teenagers were. I don't know, but they're teenagers. So fuck them. I don't know where they were. <laughs> but anyway, I was watching TV and the John Lewis Christmas advert came on. Who has not seen that ad? Okay, for those of you who have not seen it, it is an advertisement about Elton John. Right? Elton John when he was young, Elton John in the present, Elton John in the future, Elton John when he was big, Elton John when he was thin. It, the whole, it's just Elton John. And then there's a Christmas tree stuck in the back somewhere, and it's a Christmas ad. So we were watching this, and the baby figured out that it was about Christmas, but she couldn't figure it out. So she said to me, Mama, who's that? And I said, that's Santa Claus. <laughs> Why would I be so mean? And she said, but he doesn't look like Santa. I'm like, well, that's because he's not dressed for work. And I know it's affecting her mental health because on her Christmas list that she had on her door, I came and she'd written right at the bottom, P.S. 
Oh, because in this ad, he's playing the piano a lot, right? So she put, P.S., Dear Santa, please do not give me a piano. <laughs> so I felt kind of bad. But, you know, tough. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do? Talking about kids and mothers giving kids bad mental health, my mother called me uh, about two months ago and said, you have to come and visit us. You haven't visited us for so long. And I was like, no, I'm not coming. I mean, it's far, it's India. Like, I don't, I'm not going. I'm very, very busy. And she said, you better come or soon I'll be dead. Then you won't see. <laughs> and for those of you who've heard me speak about my mother before, you know she's been doing this uh, soon I'll be dead thing. For anything that we wouldn't do what she said, she'd be like, I mean, like when we were little, should I drink your milk or soon I'll be dead? And we'd be like, oh shit, we drink our milk. But now I know that that's not true. But when my mother called me now and said, you better come or soon I'll be dead, she's so old, I can't call her bluff. <laughs> so I went. And uh, I went and I took a carrier I've never flown because it was a sudden trip and it was a very short trip. And uh, it's an Indian carrier. And I mean, it's not like I'm a monumental racist that I haven't ever flown an Indian carrier. It's just, it hadn't, you know, they're very expensive, but I needed to go, so I went. By the way, food, much better, much better. Anyway, as we were landing, one of the crew, he made the announcement in Hindi about like, you know, it's, we're blah, 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 this airport, and blah, 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 that time, and blah, 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 because this is how Hindi sounds. And, um, <laughs> and then he said, the temperature outside in Hindi, he said, the temperature outside is 36 degrees. And I was like, meh, you know, October 36, fine, I can handle that. But when he did the announcement in English, he said, the temperature outside is 26 degrees. Because obviously he did not want all the white people on the flight to be like, I didn't buy this cheap holiday to die of heat stroke when I land, right? As soon as he said 26 in English, all the Hindi speakers on the flight, I think all the Indians just went, <laughs> And there was an English gentleman sitting next to me and he turned to me as soon as we laughed and said, what are you laughing at? And he said it so suddenly, I had no time to change my facial expression. So I was like, Ooh. And then he said, are you laughing at us? And I felt really guilty. Because I've lived here now for 21 years, and this place has been very good to me. I choose to live here. And I thought, what if this was inverted? What if there was a plane load full of white people, and they had laughed because I had not understood something? That would be on Twitter. It would be a scandal. And here we are. I felt so bad, but I thought, what am I gonna say to this guy? And here's what I thought. I thought, I can't tell him the truth because, yeah, of course we're laughing at you, but I mean, I mean, I can't tell him that the guy said 26 in English because then that guy's gonna seem like a liar. Um, and the whole thing, and I was like, what can I say that this man is gonna not feel bad and I'm gonna absolve myself? So he said, were you laughing at us? And I said, no. And he said, what are you laughing at? And I said, Brexit. <laughs> and you know what? To his credit, he said, oh, yeah, fair play, fair play. <laughs> and that was that. Anyway, you have a great night ahead. Thank you so much. <laughs> the remarkable Cindy thing, everybody. All right, our first guest today is currently a guest researcher at the Norwegian Human Rights Center. And she's formerly the director of Amnesty International Turkey. Please welcome to the stage a genuinely wonderful human being and all-round hilarious woman, Edil Esser. 
seat. So, Adil, I met you at Amnesty International, where I'm lucky enough to be an ambassador, and they basically brought you into a room and said, tell them, tell them. And so we sat there while you told us some remarkable things. Growing up in Turkey, was life pretty much like growing up in Britain? Was it similar? It was more restrictive in some ways, but I belong to a more secular kind of culture. So it was very democratic and liberal and similar to Britain. But I cannot say that it was true for all sections of the society. But it was definitely more freer and democratic than it is now. And how quickly did it tip? Oh, very fast. I think when you look back, it's easier to say certain things with hindsight. It started in 2011. It got worse after 2013, and there was the coup attempt in 2016. Afterwards, it became totally chaotic and totally non-democratic. And did you anticipate... So the sort of stuff that I was talking about tonight, where you kind of get this feeling that things are changing, uh, did you get that feeling? Yes, I mean, I studied history. I was doing my PhD in history, so I had a very good understanding of European history, what things led to First and Second World War. So I was quite aware of what might happen, but many people thought that I was being paranoid, pessimistic, sending wrong wives to the universe, that kind of stuff. So uh, then I pruned my story. Yes, yes. Yeah, I got detained. You got detained. And arrested. Arrested. What was that like? What happened? Where where were you? In many cases, people's lives change when they meet a person, they read a book. In my case, I attended a very simple workshop. It was on cybersecurity and how to deal with secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, for some reason that I really don't know about, the police decided to raid our workshop which was not secret. It was in a glass kind of aquarium kind of place. And we were treated like uh, the mafia bosses in Narco. And they came in like American policemen with guns, you know, saying, get away from your laptop and mobiles. Keep your hands up in the air. And most of us, I mean, there were 10 of us in the workshop. Two of them were facilitators. And four of the women were all over 50. So it was quite tiring to keep our hands up. (laughs) So after a while, we said, I mean, I had seen it from the TVs. Can't we keep it like this? And we said, you know, I have blood pressure medicine I have to take. (laughs) I have asthma and things like that. Well, I I need my puffer. Yeah. Yeah, And And did they let you do those things? Yeah, but I mean, after a while, they take it away from you at uh, the police stations, but you are allowed, if you bang on the door and say, I have an asthma crisis, give me my medicine, yeah, you can get them. But I was also smoking, which was in contravention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Asthma, but it is a serious asthma. So then you were sent to prison. First, we were taken uh, into custody and we were sent into the detention center in this Princess Island, the biggest one. And I wouldn't recommend anyone to be detained there because they had fleas. Yeah, and I got bitten by all those fleas. I'm allergic. What you have to understand now is we are going into the TripAdvisor portion of (laughs) Idol's general advice. It's basically a series of TripAdvisor reviews of the prisons of Turkey. (laughs) 
so the first place, don't go there because of fleas. Don't go there. It's very small, first of all. I mean, they separated man and woman, and I couldn't find as the fourth person in the female portion enough space on the bank. So I sat on the ground, and I got beaten by fleas. And it wasn't very well ventilated, and it was so boring. We all wanted to go to the toilet from time to time just to have a change. <laughs> oh, wow. And how long were you there? We weren't there for very long. Uh, we were taken into the mainland, except the two foreign nationals who were the facilitators. And I was quite pissed because I was assigned two policemen instead of one, like the other woman. I thought, do they think I'm the ringleader, mafia, what are they? <laughs> and I realized there's a secret witness testimony afterwards, and she described me four inches longer than I should be. So they thought I'm very big, and I can only be controlled by two policemen. Wow. Well, to be fair, it was quite feisty. If I had to control her, I would put two men on the case. I would just hold out cigarettes, like... <laughs> and then she would be very much under yes. control. I say this as an yeah. ex-smoker. You could get me to do anything if I wanted a cigarette. Like, I'm like, That's okay, why fine. I quit smoking when I get into the detention center and started again in prison. Oh, did you? Yes. So where did you go? Where was the next prison? First, we were separated two by two and taken into a police station on the Asian side of Istanbul. <laughs> and I ended up with uh, the good friend of mine now. Mm. We were just acquaintances at the time. Uh, we ended up in a small police station in Maltepe, which is a good place because, yeah, uh, the, one of the policemen was very nice and he made us use the nice police bathroom, which was clean oh. and sprinkly. Yeah. So you could use the staff bathroom? Yes, but oh, I mean, you have to bang on the door and they had just two cells and they weren't told that we were women, so they had the man in the other cell and they were quite pissed with that. But when we were there, it was about 2 a.m. and they had to accept us. But it meant that, you know, when the men were locked, uh, we had to be free. And when the men were not locked, we have to get out. So when we had, you know, have to pee, for example, you have to tell the other guys in prison to say, bang on the door. I want to use the toilet so they can open the door. And then where did you go next after that? Uh, we went to the anti-terror section of the Istanbul security prison, uh, which was very crowded. But afterwards, I talked to the other prisoners. I learned that we were quite privileged because it could have been worse. We were just one level below the floor, ground level. Some people were two or three levels below. They had ventilation problems, of course. And you have to stand on some sort of plastic mattresses. I wasn't lucky enough to end up in the mattresses. I was on the you know, floor with plastic, very slim kind of mattress. But it was warm. At least it was in summer, so it wasn't a big problem. But uh, we didn't have pillows. And uh, we used blankets as pillows. And we always smelled like you know, wet dogs because I realized afterwards that we were washing ourselves and we were using the blanket and it was getting wet and mm. it was always smelling like bed dogs. First of all, I have huge admiration for the positives in this story. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very cold because it was summer. Yeah, great. But how long were you there? Uh, I stayed in detention in total for 12 days, so it should be something like 9 or 10 days at that place. And you have to, I mean, the main problem in prison or in detention is boredom. 
because you are always under light. So you have to learn how to sleep in total light. light. And you don't have anything to pass the day. I mean, they had very shitty books there. Uh, so you read those over and over again. You really hate them. I have a question. <laughs> Were you scared? No, I mean, I wasn't. I found the whole thing very absurd from beginning to end, and I still do. I don't know. I was tired with all this situation, and the time didn't pass, so we tried certain things, like I impersonated uh, Gangnam Style <laughs> modeling. <laughs> And the policemen were quite upset with it. <laughs> I also had the most, I'm um, the highest number of clothing items for some strange reason, and everyone had wrong clothing items. I mean, you don't need high heels or things like that in a cell. But for, for re some reason, everyone was, was family was bringing, you know, totally inappropriate clothes. Oh. <laughs> so we thought we decided to write uh, some sort of clothing guide to prisoners, but. We never found the opportunity. So after a while, you got sent to a maximum security prison, didn't you? No, first I was sent to a woman's prison. A woman's prison? Friend. Yeah, and you are very glad to end up in prison after you are arrested because you can have tea or coffee, something warm, because you are never given something warm in detention. And the food is very, very bad. In prison, it was bad. <laughs> but it wasn't very, very bad. Wasn't very no. bad. So it's sort of more like a two-star than a no-star. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So, and you also have a, some sort of a mattress, pillow, even your own room. I mean, even if you may share it with someone else, you have your own space, which is very good. But, I mean, also in the prison, the first ward I was sent to, they didn't have any European-style bathrooms. I mean, they all had the squatting-type Turkish bathrooms, and I hate that. Mm. So after 10 days, I was sent to another ward uh, where they were keeping the supposed Gülenis uh, police woman. I was quite happy because one of the uh, rooms had one European-style bathroom, so I was like in heaven. <laughs> and, uh, oh my God, I don't have to squat when I have to crap. <laughs> When did you go to the... the I think at, after, it should be something like at the end of July. Uh, we weren't told that we are going to be sent to another prison. Uh, we were told that our ward was being changed. And I said, this is the third time in two weeks. I mean, what are you doing? Please decide. But somebody came. <laughs> I can understand that. I yeah. can be like... And Just I get attached to places. I mean, I start to see those kind of uh, cells as my home. And uh, one MP <laughs> visited This is more now us. like an Airbnb review. Yeah, yeah. And one MP came and she said, you know, I'm sorry to inform you, but you are not being moved to another ward, but to another prison. This is the maximum male security prison in Turkey. Which the maximum is male security prison? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure about the numbers, but I think it's between 15 or 17,000 male prisoners. And we, they had something like, I'm not exactly sure about the numbers, 60 or 70 females in that prison. So I went to the maximum security section of the maximum security prison with my female co-defendants except the one who was in Ankara. So uh, What was that like there? Well, I mean, first of all, the journey was terrible because the prison bus is like a sardine can. It's very small. 
you are handcuffed and there's only a window quite up and there's a camera, of course. So you don't know where you are being taken off. And perhaps we thought uh, we will be together with my co-defendants, but no, we weren't. Uh, they just brought somebody else from women's prison to escort us and we ended up in not a very small, but quite an isolated kind of cell. They had three beds in every cell. It's something like, it's a duplex. So you have the living room downstairs, <laughs> opening cement garden. So you weren't with the men, it was more like a, another it separate was, wing. Well, I mean, on the next cell, there were men, but you never see other prisoners. That's how it is designed. Right. I mean, it is designed in such a way that you just see your cellmates, prison guards, and family or lawyer. That's and it. Could you have your family come to visit you? Well, I don't have any first-degree relatives, so they couldn't. So it meant I can only see my lawyer one hour per week. Other than that, except doctor visits, I couldn't see anyone. So I was totally alone with my cellmate, which was like arranged marriage, to be exact. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> You end up with someone that you don't know, living 24 hours together. Yeah, all I can the imagine time. that's intense. I mean, there's a few other things that happen in an arranged marriage, just saying. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. You could have tried it. You could have. You, could have. <laughs> uh, you knew this cellmate. Was it a co-defendant? No, a I had met her person? for a week in the other woman's prisoner. I mean, they had taken the three people who were very religious on the first ward. My, I was lucky. Mine was the young, uh, and also she had a sense of humor. Good. Yeah. That's the, so more Gangnam Style. Yes. Excellent. But, but she got really, really, you know, religious in cell. But she was a nice person. But she was type 1 diabetic. So I was always afraid that something will happen to her. You told me at Amnesty that you missed Game of Thrones. Yes, I mean, yeah. Because, I mean, I had TV, but they didn't have Game of Thrones. And I was totally upset with it. I thought, if I die here, I will die without seeing the last season of it. <laughs> That's a shame. And because we don't know the indictment, I didn't know what I was accused of till the indictment was prepared, which is three and a half months. Mm -hmm. So you're in prison for three and a half months, no Game of Thrones? No Game of Thrones and no indictment. No, I don't no. know what I'm being accused of. And I'm quite upset that I cannot follow this. I asked my lawyer to tell me about the Game of Thrones. Unluckily, he wasn't watching it. So he brought someone and people in Amnesty wrote me episode reviews. <laughs> and because of the emergency law at that time, I wasn't allowed to see my lawyer alone. It was on camera and with the existence of a prisoner guard and she was also watching Game of Thrones. Uh, she was saving it to watch it with her husband. And she heard the whole episode before she watched. She was so pissed. <laughs> so basically, it was spoiler hour for her, where she had yes. to stand there and listen and to the whole of Game of Thrones. she never attended uh, my uh, sessions with the lawyer again. Because <laughs> you could sort of find out what else she was watching. And sort of, what, what's this one watching? Tell me about that. I don't watch it, but tell me about that. So why I love listening to you talk about this 
Idol, is that I feel like you make this accessible. Often when you hear about human rights abuses, it feels like people far away who live in countries that are not like ours. And you seem like somebody like me or Sindhu, and this is how we would talk about it, sort of like, oh God, I'm missing Game of Thrones and what's this toilet meant to be? And you know, like, and so it makes me realize that for you in your country, you had a respectable job, you were running Amnesty, and then suddenly overnight you were a prisoner yourself. Yes. Yes, it just happened like that. I mean, I was aware of the risk, but I wasn't aware of the speed that it would deteriorate. And I was also seeing lots of diplomats, seeing mm-hmm. ministers, high-level government people. So how... Then I was writing petitions to them. Are you writing petitions to them? Of course. I mean, you have to get certain things. They didn't give me a yoga mat, for example. I don't do yoga, but I wanted the yoga mat. <laughs> Because they didn't give it. Did you get your yoga mat in the end? Yes, eventually. Yes, I bet you did. I'm a very good petition fighter. Yes, yes, I imagine. You ran a branch of amnesty. (laughs) What should we be on guard for in terms of countries around us and our own country going further right and these kind of human rights abuses happening overnight? What should we be on guard for and how can we be fighting this, Idol? First of all, I think dictators have a bad practice workshop and they learn from each other. A um, bad practice workshop. Yeah. What they all get together. So do you think Putin rings Trump and goes, oh, Well, I just, I, they don't have to ring, but they just read on the global news and they learn, well, international society or community didn't react to it, so I can do and get away with it. And they are copying one another. Mm-hmm. You should be very careful about how media is presented and how media is preserved. It should remain totally independent. Mm-hmm. And so you're not uh, a fan of Trump's uh, state-owned press idea? Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. I have seen how it works. 95% of uh, media in Turkey is controlled by the government. Wow. So it means all information is controlled by the government. And you also have to form communities of resistance and joy. Uh, resistance and joy. and joy. Resistance and, and joy. It has That's to be really resilient. Important. You shouldn't accept easy victories because it takes all important uh, goals and issues require resilience and long breath. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You have to continue fighting with joy and happiness and also have to find ways of talking to the other half. Don't demonize them. Don't uh, use derogatory words for them because you have to work with them. They may be misinformed or may not have other issues, but you have to work with the other half of the population in Turkey to also in Trump's America. The societies are divided in between. So calling each other names doesn't work. And also make sure that... It's tempting though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, it doesn't work. And don't individualize, don't personalize the issue. Don't make it, for example, Erdogan's problem, Trump's problem. They are just symptoms of a deeper problem in the country. Mm-hmm. So they just symbolize those problems. And uh, also take care and provide solidarity with what's happening in other countries because it's like virus, it will come back and become your problems as well, even if you don't care. Uh, what urban society's does, influence it, each other. Yes, 
and also uh, it can lead up to war and lots of other uh, problematic issues. Those human rights were developed for a reason uh, throughout history. They were the concise geist of the time to give uh, a solution to all the problems that were lived before the world wars. Nurture them, protect them, and defend them and be ready to stand up for any kind of injustice done to whoever that is, because you cannot have double standards in human rights. You shouldn't care about the personality of the victim or the abuser. You should stand for human rights, and eventually we shall win, because no country or no system can go like this. It's not stable. We want to do a campaign over the next two years to fight the far right and to create this place of resistance, joy and resilience. Would you come back from Norway and do a workshop with us so teach us some more? Definitely. And I would love to come out to Norway as well and do an episode of the podcast out there with you. Oh, I will definitely do that. Wonderful. Um, can I have a big round of applause for the wonderful Cindy V? And the magnificent Idel Essa. to the Amnesty website. Amnesty International have brought Idle over from Norway. Please, please, please go to the Amnesty website to see what you can do. Join Amnesty, donate to Amnesty, sign the petitions. They are pointing, if you're thinking, oh, what injustices, I don't know where to go. Yes, you do. Go to the Amnesty website and they will point you in the direction of these injustices and they will show you what to do. And writing letters really, really does work. You have to remember that Idle got her yoga mat and that was through letter writing and petitions. Um, last time we were here at the Lyric Hammersmith, uh, we went to the pub afterwards and uh, some of the audience came along and uh, there was a young woman called Charlotte and we were talking about this stuff. And Charlotte said that she told us a story about her grandmother had uh, escaped from the Holocaust as a child. Because so many people from that time have passed on, including Charlotte's grandmother, and we need to remember, we need to remember, we've asked Charlotte tonight uh, if she would come back and read a little bit from her grandmother's memoirs. Her grandmother did not tell her anything while she was alive. She was a trauma victim and she couldn't really talk about it, but she did log it before she died. Uh, so could you please put your hands together and make wonderful welcome to Charlotte. Hello, everyone. I want to tell you about my grandma. My grandmother, Ricky, my nonna, was an understatedly inspirational woman. She was full of laughter and drive, combined with relentless compassion and, above all, patience. My nonna was short and spoke with the most obscure Russian accent, often to herself, mainly to herself. She would clap her hands when she sneezed too much, an ailment she consistently suffered from, and she'd shout, Shut up, Ricky! as she clapped. <laughs> she would put too much alcohol in her food, pretend she hadn't, and then get so pissed she'd fall off the chair. <laughs> in the 60s, she'd get so stoned, she couldn't stop laughing, and again fell off her chair, much to the dismay of her kids returning home from university. But sadly, as well, she would also wake up in the middle of the night, screaming from memories of being a child in the concentration camps. My grandmother came from a small town in Belarus, previously Lithuania, called Oshmiana. From there, she was moved from ghetto to ghetto, until she was taken to a concentration camp called Kaiserwald in Latvia, where she was, at the age of about seven, 
put to slave labor. She survived this camp miraculously as all under 18s were put to death when the Russians started to advance. She was later moved to Stutov, another labor and death camp, and was there until 44 when the Russians were fast approaching and so she began the trek into Germany from Poland towards Belsen. It was on this last leg that she was liberated and this is where the part of her story begins. These are my nonna's words. During this time in Stutov, I can't remember ever not being frightened, hungry, and desperate. I must have been about eight or nine years old. But the one thing that I think helped me and saved me then and later was that I was befriended by the people in the camps. It is as ever that humanity touched me throughout my life. I am the most fortunate of people then and now. I don't remember timings as time was so strange for us all, but I seem to remember walking, walking, walking. We just followed each other and ended up eventually near Poland. I knew quite a few people there in the camp. We had nourishing food and clothes, not the striped sacking we were liberated in. We were also at liberty to go out of the camp. Strength was starting to return to me, and I started to feel... It's strange to start talking about feeling like this, but we were like the dead. One had to survive somehow, so one didn't think or let oneself feel. Eventually, we began to humanize, little by little, and people became closer touching, talking, trying to find relatives or neighbors, looking for familiar faces. Making friends, we were always asking if anyone had heard news of our families. One day, a Russian doctor came to the camp to see if there were some people capable of working in the hospital. Of course, many young women applied. I was too young, but I was desperate not to be separated from the people I was traveling with. So I went to the officer and I begged him to let me work in the hospital, even just to scrub the floors. Sadly, he looked at me and told me he wouldn't take me that day. He just gently touched my cheek, said that he'd think about it, and then he was gone. A few days later, a bus came to take most of my friends to the hospital in town, and I felt so dejected. I just sat by the gates and sobbed. A few hours later, a car drew up, and out of curiosity, we all looked up. We used to stare at any newcomer who came to the camp. Out from the car stepped the Russian doctor, Daddy Amisha. I shall describe him now, as it might help to understand why I took such a liking to him and trusted him instinctively. He was not young, about 45-ish, short, stout, very bushy eyebrows, under from which looked out the kindest, laughing eyes. I think they were grey-blue. He came over, he took my tiny, frail hand, said that he was very sorry, but he couldn't let me scrub the floors in the hospital, that he would like me to come and live in his house, and that his housekeeper could do with some help. Well, I cannot remember if I thanked him, but I was so relieved. It's difficult to describe how I felt when an outsider, not someone from the camps, was so kind and so caring that he came himself to fetch me to his house. Oh, I was thrilled to get out of the camps. I couldn't remember freedom at that time. My life with Daddy Amisha, as I was told to call him, was strange, to say the least. He was a good man with a wife and a daughter in Leningrad, but he had a mistress, the housekeeper. A very good-looking woman. I think she was Russian. When he entertained his friends, the house shook with laughter, drink and song. All the people were sweet and kind to me. Presents came in abundance, like bicycles, dolls, sweets, which I couldn't remember seeing in years. Um, and a parrot, who unfortunately was German and had a rather undesirable habit of lifting its wing and leg and shouting, Heil Hitler. <laughs> While I was there, my friends from the camps had a Red Cross leaflet with information telling us that Auntie Dora and Auntie Etta survived and were looking for family survivors. 
I was overjoyed, as you can imagine. When I told the doctor about my aunts, how they were in Lodst, I wanted to go and find them as soon as I could, so he arranged for me to go with a soldier. We found my aunts. I went back to the doctor, who had all my newly gifted possessions, packed, parrot and all, said a very tearful goodbye. I went to Lodz. Life was good with my aunts, and we moved again from Lodz to Cremona in Italy. Soon, though, the future in Cremona started to look uncertain. So when it was discovered that the Red Cross had found further family in the UK, I got on the road again, as I was so used to by this point. Terrified with memories of past experience, I took my bags and I travelled to London. I remember thinking all those years ago, young and lonely on a train to London, how fortunate I was. I still think it, to have had that love and to have had you, my children. You are my joy and my love, and I'm still so very, very fortunate. When I read Nonna's words, it feels so easy with hindsight to piece together a story, to see how the effects of each wonderful person's actions contributed to her vitality, keeping her alive and sane. But when you're up close in the thick of it, it's so hard to see what an impact we make. If only I could find Daddy Amisha, or the people who protected her in the camps, or the people who showed her kindness in Paris, to thank them for the vital part they played in keeping my incredible grandma alive, I would be forever grateful. Sadly, though, I can't. So all I can really do is, is stand in front of you and tell you her story and remind you and remind myself that every positive contribution we make can make a difference to someone's life that maybe they'll remember 60 years down the line when they're telling their grandchildren stories of the kindness of strangers. Thank you. Charlotte Williams, everybody. Um, that was very beautiful, and it really reminds us when we're kind to people, especially refugees, we're going into somebody's memoirs. Um, anyway, now, <laughs> um, the Christmas extravaganza part. <laughs> Let's not forget that. In case you're questioning, Deborah, we've seen the anti-fascism. Where is the Christmas extravaganza? Well, to take us out to interval... We have decided to give you the most feminist Christmas carol of all. Please welcome to the stage the wonderful Clarissa Land.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Are you feeling fired up against fascism? Expecting a Yuletide extravaganza? Yeah! Are you very Christmassy? Yeah! Do you want peace and love to all human beings? Yeah! Then please welcome to the stage the spirit of Christmas herself. Put your hands together and make wonderful woohoo noises for the excellent Grace Petrie! So um, my name is Grace Petrie. As I've said before on this podcast, I am a folk singer. I write songs um, which are exclusively fall into two categories. I have uh, sad lesbian love songs and angry songs about social justice. Um, so obviously I get quite a lot of Christmas party bookings. Uh, tonight is no exception. Um, and uh, I've got something thematically prepared. Uh, this is an old song that I wrote a few years ago when I got dumped. <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, it serves me right because I left a pause for a sympathetic sigh and somebody shouted woo! So, you know, the joke's very much on me. No, I, um, I wrote this song when I got dumped a few years ago and I... Um, it's fine. I mean, I felt like a fish for that a bit, but I'll take it. Um, the film Frozen, uh, which I think is one of the great pieces of art of the 21st century, got me through that experience. When I was in that post-dumped phase, when I was talking lots and lots and lots and lots about the person who dumped me, and I was doing a lot of internal and external analysis of what happened, and I was doing this with my friends, and I thought that they were just as interested in it as I was. <laughs> and it turns out... But they weren't, so. <laughs> so this is a little song about being dumped. And it goes this. Well, last night in the pub, I realised I was being tolerated, not enjoyed. I saw it there reflected in friends' eyes I've become the kind of person I avoid <laughs> I woke up feeling rough and wondering when My needle got stuck on a groove called you 
And as I reached for Alka-Seltzer, the wisdom of Elsa came to me. And now I know what I must do. Because at living without you, I've gotten pretty good. Just need to stop talking about you like my friends all wish I would. And I don't understand what happened. Just accept I'll never know. I don't need to go to a palace made of snow. But I need to let it go. <laughs> Well, epiphanies can come from anywhere From the sunrise or the verses of Shakespeare It wasn't Sylvia Plath or Nietzsche that turned out to be my teacher It was Disney had the words I had to hear Because at living without you I've gotten pretty good Just need to stop talking about you Like my friends all wish I would And I don't understand what happened Just accept I'll never know I don't need to go to a palace made of snow I just need to let it go, let it go Can't hold it back anymore Let it go, let it go Turn away and slam the door And all those times I just wouldn't be told And now I finally broke out this chokehold And all the times, all the times you were cold Never bothered me anyway <laughs> Because living without you, yeah, I've gotten pretty good Just need to stop talking about you Like my friends all wish I would And I don't understand what happened But I guess I'll never know I don't need to go to a palace made of snow I just need to let it go I just need to let it go I just need to let it go Thank you very much. I've got a proper Christmas song now, but if you want to get technical about it, I've got three. <laughs> so sing along if you know any of the words to this. Are you hanging up your stocking on your wall? It's a time that every Santa has a ball Does he ride a red-nosed reindeer Stick a ball upon his sleigh Do the fairies keep him sober for the day So here it is, Merry Christmas Everybody's having fun Look to the future now It's only just begun Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay From now on our troubles will be far away Shall be near to us 
once more Through the years we all be together If the fates allow Hang a shining star upon the of that expression. I would now like uh, to interview our next guest. So first of all, I'll introduce our co-host, the wonderful Sindhu V. Our next guest is a novelist and the compiler and brains behind The Good Immigrant. Please welcome to the mic, the wonderful Nikesh Shukla. Hi, how's it going? I'm just going to start with a very, very short extract from a poem by the amazing Fatima Azgar, because uh, I think it's apt for this evening, and it's from her poetry collection, If They Come For Us, which is out next year, or this year, if you know how to buy books internationally. Um, so I'm just going to read a short extract from it. My country is made in my people's image. If they come for you, they come for me too. In the dead of winter, a flock of aunties step out on the sand. Their dupatas turn to ocean. A colony of uncles grind their palms and a thousand jasmines bell the air. My people, I follow you like constellations. We hear the glass smashing the streets and the nights opening their dark. Our names this country would. For the fire, my people, my people, the long years we've suffered, the long years yet to come. I see you map my sky, the light, your lantern long ahead, and I follow, I follow. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Come and join us here on the Guilty Feminist Sofa, by which I mean three chairs the theatre happen to have. Three, three conference chairs three. from their conference room. Nikesh, thank you so much for coming to join us today. What inspired you to put together The Good Immigrant? I found myself sitting on way too many diversity panels. Mm. If you're a writer of colour, um, you're never invited to panels where you get to talk about your craft. You're just mm. invited to panels where you have to talk about diversity all the time. And I just, I did, just did one too many of them. And, Do and you know that's very similar to being a woman? 
And then if you're a woman of colour, mm, there's your special subject, born on Mastermind. <laughs> your special subject, Sindhu V, is being an Asian woman. Yeah, it is. And I mean, yeah, I'm an expert at it, as it happens, but you're absolutely right. You know, people, that's why they want you on. But anyway, so tell us about the book. Mm, tell us about the book. Well, the last diversity panel I did was really horrendous because um, this editor from this publishing house was talking about how everyone just assumes that the best books get published, and I've read a lot of stinkers. And I was saying that, you know, maybe the thing that publishing needs to do to diversify would be to diversify the staff because once you have a diverse staff, then the output becomes inherently diverse and... Uh, this editor said, in my entire 40-year career, I've never once been sent a CV by a black woman. And everyone was a bit like, how do you know that? Mm. And I was about to say something, but then someone stood up in the audience and she said, hi, my name is, and she gave her name, I'm not going to say her actual name. She was something like, hi, my name is Anna Stevens. Uh, and she was black. Uh, hi, my name is Anna Stevens. I've applied to work for your publisher around seven times, and I've never got so much as an interview, and I have no idea how you'd know from my CV that I'm black. And I walked away from that going, that was horrible. And I started composing my best arch tweet about the whole thing. And then oh, I just... And, I know that feeling. Yeah. I'm so angry. I was so angry, almost tweeted about it. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I thought, I'm not going to tweet about it. I need to do something constructive. And so the idea of the book started to form. And I'd just read Citizen by Claudia Rankin and Between the World had been by ta Coates. And I thought... Why isn't there a contemporary progressive book about race in the UK? At the time, I didn't know about Rennie Edo Lodge's book and mm -hmm. I didn't know about Ethel Hirsch's book. Those deals hadn't been announced yet. And so I thought maybe I should do one. I was like, well, it would be a shame if it was just me. So maybe I could do an anthology. And so I started asking a bunch of You thought of it books. would be a shame if it was just you. If you don't mind me saying, that's very female of you. <laughs> It's a shame. I couldn't possibly just be me. I mean, I'll, I'll ask 50 other people to contribute. Um, and it's, it's, but it's very collaborative and lovely. But what's brilliant about it is the book has all of these different angles and opinions. Yeah, and it was a complete unexpected success. Uh, and we had loads and loads of brilliant writers. And my brief to the writers wasn't, I'm going to produce this all representative selection of writers from every single community represented in the equalities monitoring forms that we have in the UK. I was just like, I'm just going to ask a bunch of people and whoever turns something in on time can be in the book. And, I'll, <laughs> and, it. and I gave them quite a light brief. But the thing that was actually brilliant that started to emerge was you. Um, so whenever someone asks you to talk about your race and you talk about your experience, that then becomes the experience for the whole community. Yeah. And what started to emerge was we were getting all these essays in and there were people disagreeing with each other or um, coming at statistics or instances from different angles. And that was really wonderful to be able to kind of create a nuanced book that had a diversity of opinion from a diversity of voices. And I really loved that the book has stuff in it that even I disagree with or stuff that made me question instances of my own unconscious bias and mm. instances where writers would disagree with each other and then... Could you um, tell us something that made you question your unconscious bias? Vera Chok's essay, Yellow, goes into uh, great detail about how when in conversations about race, you know, the East Asian communities and Southeast Asian communities feel quite ignored. And that was something mm. that was like, I hadn't ever considered that was an issue. I would just always thought they were with us. And reading her essay, I was like, oh my God, like, I like unconsciously perpetuated this. And that was a really great thing to read. And I think that was an essay that really resonated with a lot of people or really sort of 
prickled at a lot of people as well, which was great. And it's delivered with such sarcasm. It's brilliant. Mm. That's so interesting. Uh, what do you think your piece for this would be, Sindhu? Oh, if you'd ask me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be more anthologies, won't there? I am being, I'm, that's very unfair, Nikesh. I was hardly, I mean, I think when you were asking people, I hadn't even properly started stand-up, I think. I was just driving kids back and forth from school and <laughs> crying. Um, <laughs> it's a fact. It's a fact. I mean, I don't know how many of you have to do two different, three different school runs, and it's just all you're thinking is just let me drop this one off. Do not vomit. Do not, you know, don't. Anyway, so um, I think actually, and it's very interesting because I think if I wrote for that, my experience is so different because I didn't grow up here. I grew up in India. <coughs> where I felt different because I'm like a giant, but you know, <laughs> from a race point of view, I didn't feel different at all. But I have now spent 20 years here, and my kids, I see it in them. They really, for some unknown reason, have a confusion about their race. I'm like, why, you're Indian, what's the problem? And they're like, well, our dad is Danish. I'm like, yeah, whatever, but you know. <laughs> How are you like? How are you not getting this? And it's my bias is so strong, because I'm like you're my kids, and they're like, why do you keep saying that? Like you found us somewhere, <laughs> and that's that's a huge bias I have. And I mean, I don't know because also they were raised in the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's like a third thing. I'm like, oh my god, but you know, we don't even get past the Danish thing before we start thinking. Like I said when I did the stand-up, my son sending me a text saying, till Thursday, lads. That's a very English kind of, even my husband, I mean, even in Denmark, that's not a thing. So I think what's happening now is I'm having to learn from them. And that's not always easy for me. You know, like they don't want to do Diwali the way I want to do Diwali. And they eat meat and I don't eat meat. And yeah, I wish they were just like me. <laughs> they're not. Uh, I'm going to be honest. You have to do one for the... Is there another anthology of The Good Immigrant coming out? Uh, yeah, so we've got... Uh... Sorry, I'm... Well, I'm commissioning... I'm, I'm being invited, I'm being forced invited. But I just want to say one thing. As a parent, it is hard for me because I'm so convinced that my way is right. I make no bones about it. We, you know, as a parent, the one thing you cling to is your culture. If you're in a third culture mm. or a second culture, you think this worked for me. This is going to have to work for you. They have really taught me, though... Actually, they haven't taught me. They've said to my face, <laughs> this is not India. Stop saying that to us, you know, and things like this. I think, I think for them that book would be very important and any further book like that because, you know, their experience is so much more complicated than mine. It's so much more complicated. And unlike me, they don't get to choose how much of them is Indian and how much of them is Danish. They're a mix. They're a genuine mix. You know, and I think that must be difficult, not yet, but I think it's going to be. So I keep telling them, but if you just listen to me, we just do it Indian way, it's easy. <laughs> I think one of the, it's interesting hearing you say that because like one of my biggest regrets was, you know, I'd speak Gujarati at home and I would speak English at school. And then there came a point where I felt so othered at school, I would start replying to my mum in English yes. and my sister and I would start talking to each other in English. And then after a while, my mum would just stop replying in Gujarati and she would start answering in English. And now I'm trying to teach my daughters Gujarati, but I have no idea. Like, I can go, um, Hati, elephant, that, you know, that's the yeah. extent of my Gujarati. Kemcho, Majamacho, that's it. And I feel like there's a loss in mm. me that I just didn't keep that up. And it was partly shame from school. 
Well, you know, I wish I'd just recorded that because my kids... You don't... know this is a podcast, babe. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Oh, here's the thing. I'm going to make my kids listen. I'm going to make my kids listen. I have always spoken Hindi to the kids. You've got to get them to subscribe first. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Review on um, iTunes. Because here's the thing. I've always spoken Hindi to them. I was raised with people who were just like me. So I never had this idea that, oh, you should speak to your kids in your language because then when they grow up, yeah, I just never thought of those things. We all grew up speaking English and Hindi or whatever. And I always spoke Hindi to the kids. My husband didn't speak Danish to them because he was like, it's too complicated. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, English is fine. So these kids speak English, which is fine but they understand Hindi. And they keep saying, oh, you know, why are you on our case about Hindi? Now I want them to listen to your thing and say, you know, in however many years, you're going to be crying because you didn't listen to me. So just listen to me now, right? Yeah. You are basically the ghost of Christmas future. Yes. <laughs> you are right there, right there. I get it. Language is such an important thing. And I speak to my children in Hindi automatically. I'll speak to anyone's kids in Hindi, frankly. But... <laughs> It's one of those things, and I think, will my children regret it? And then I think, you know what, they'll figure it out, I guess. It is, just like when I read the book and when I think about these things, it's hard for me to put it into my world, mm -hmm. but I put it into, into their, their world. world. And I also understand parents, like your mom, who want to keep so much of mm. what's theirs in their kids. Because it's right. <laughs> the reason I'm very interested in The Good Immigrant, what it's doing is fighting othering. And I'm very, very interested in how we can create stories about individuals and give individuals an amplified voice. The state I grew up in Australia was very homophobic when I was growing up. And I've seen how much even television programs that might be criticized for being camp or playing into a stereotype like Will and Grace or Queer Eye, the original series, have eroded the homophobia because people got to know those characters and even having... I'm sounding more Australian as I'm talking about this, aren't I? I can hear it. Um, <laughs> but I feel like we need to create breadcrumbs that would lead people to the good immigrant. Do you see what I mean by that? Mm. That if people are on Instagram for contouring and cats or what are the breadcrumbs that can lead people to the good immigrant that we as guilty feminist listeners and creators can help with? I mean... Riz was in a Star War, and he's in the book. Um, <laughs> watch Star, a watch a Star War. Um, well, I mean, I guess the interesting work that I've been doing recently is about ensuring that kids have access to diverse books and inclusive books. If any of you have time to get down to Brixton before the end of the week, uh, this amazing organization called Knights Of is running a pop-up shop, which is like in the UK in the last year, like 1% of children's books featured a non-white character. And so they're basically- 1%? Yeah. Shout out oh, to the so 1%. That was, a, that was a shout out to Knights Of, I think. Okay, she cool. shouted woo and then said Knights Of. Okay, cool. I just don't want you to think our audience is cheering. <laughs> the one Only 1% of books featured a character that wasn't white. And, yeah. <laughs> um, they're running a pop-up shop on Cold Harbor Lane. It's brilliant. They're really doing amazing things. But the thing that I think that is really important is that kids from all backgrounds should have access to diverse books. It's not just me or like my kids or Sindhu's kids or, you know, it's like diversity isn't just for us. So in like 1994, when I was 14, like I would read Spider-Man comics. There was nothing featuring people who looked like me. But 
we should never underestimate the power of like seeing ourselves reflected back. Um, it tells us that our stories are valid. And so I was watching uh, TV and like it was at one TV household in the mid 90s and an advert for the Buddha of Suburbia, the TV adaptation came on featuring a very young and beautiful Naveen Andrews shagging and taking drugs and listening to Bowie. And I was like, this looks amazing. And this was like the first time I'd seen a brown person on TV that wasn't Bollywood. And like Bollywood wasn't really a thing that I was that into. But then I was like, I'm not gonna sit. <laughs> I'm not going to sit next to my parents and watch The Buddha of Suburbia. That would be a bit awkward. But then it said, based on the novel by Hanif Qureshi. Uh, and I was like, aha, a loophole. My parents can't stop me getting it out from the library. Uh, and so I got it out from the library and was flicking through it. And the first lines of that book are, my name is Karim Amir and I'm an Englishman through and through, almost. And it was that one word, almost, that blew my mind open. Because I was an almost kid. I grew up in like a predominantly Gujarati area, speaking Gujarati in a Gujarati household, eating Gujarati food. And I went to a predominantly white school and ate really beige food. <laughs> and um, felt like, and I, I was sort of somewhere in between the two and I didn't know like where my tribe was. And <clears throat> that one word almost made me feel like there was a tribe out there and I just mm. hadn't found it yet. And it's really powerful. And so I think that the more that we have access to books and art and film and music and TV and all the rest of it that reflects, you know, what Fatima Asghar describes in her poem about how there's this idea of us. I feel like that is a breadcrumb to lead people on to sort of discovering that the world just isn't about them and their experience. You know, I had a really horrible incident of racism at a train station last week. And what was amazing was loads of people were like, came out in solidarity a bunch of people were horrified that Brexit had enabled such a thing. And then there was the Never Happened crew. <coughs> and the Never Happened crew, there's always like a contingent of like people of colour with a racist incident and they're part of the Never Happened crew. And they're always like, well, I have never experienced racism, so this cannot be true. And, um, you know, I feel like all of this stuff can get people out of the thought that if, it, you know, the, the ostrich complex of if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. My feeling is... Not only are we all journalists now, we're all editing a newspaper. So if in the next year I decide Nikesh writes for my newspaper on Twitter because I'm the editor, people don't have to follow Nikesh. If they follow me and I retweet a significant proportion of Nikesh's tweets, then people follow me, see what Nikesh is saying. And that's sort of one idea I've got. The other ideas I've got are around videoing, using that Instagram story to interview people, to realize you're a TV presenter. Just interview somebody, find people, interview them, interview people you know, and start rolling that out. But we've got to do it deliberately. We can't just do it accidentally. Do you see what I mean? You've got to say, that's part of my job now. So I have to do one interview a week. I have to decide who I'm going to retweet. And I've got to start to brainstorm other creative ways of making a resilient, joyful, rebellious presence. The writer Renny Edo Lodge on her podcast about race was talking about, like, she has been asked a lot in events, what can I do to help you? And my answer to the question, what can I do to help you? How can I be a good ally to you? Was always quite pithy, but she always had a really, really brilliant way of putting it. She would always say, and she says in the podcast brilliantly, I don't know where you hold power. Like, work out where you hold power and exercise, um, like, 
do good where you hold power or exercise influence where you hold power. And I, I think about that a lot because I, I think it's so easy to, you know, scroll past pictures of what's happening in Yemen and feel utterly hopeless because you can't fix Yemen and you can't fix this country and you can't fix what's happening online. But like, think about where you do hold power and where you do hold influence and what you can do to fix where you hold power and influence. And one of the things that I think where we all probably have a degree of power and influence is our street, like our immediate neighborhood and immediate environment. And we probably live next to some people who hold different political opinions to us, but we all have like a shared space that is ours, that we all want to be nice and we all mm -hmm. want it to be a safe, nice street. And so the thing that we probably need to do is like start there and then work our way upwards, like start with our immediate environment and then slowly expand work it. Expand. And wherever you work as well, if there are away days, if there are panels that you're helping organise, if there's a staff room, what are you bringing in and how are you influencing? I think you have another book. I have many books. <laughs> no, but you have another book that you so kindly sent to me and you sent the pin, which I wear. And a friend of mine said, where did you get it? And instead of saying you should buy the book, I'm like, I said, I'm not going to tell you. And then I was like, that's not being very helpful. So I, I sent it to you because you're an influencer. That is the opposite <laughs> of influencing. <laughs> but the problem is I realized that to be a good influencer, I have to be much less shallow than I am. So I've told her about the book. So just quickly tell us about the book. Yeah, it's called The One Who Wrote Destiny, and it's a fiction novel, and it's sort of the good immigrant, but fiction, and it's about a dysfunctional family. Great. And you've also got Run Riot out? Yeah, it's a thriller about gentrification for teenagers. Wonderful. So check out Nikesh Shukla's Twitter feed, Google him, look at his books, give somebody one of his books for Christmas. Ideally, if you have anyone in the family that you suspect is xenophobic or racist, that's what you put under the tree because it's, you, they start to flick through it and then they go, oh, actually, this is really interesting. Uh, but for now, a big round of applause to my wonderful co-host, Cindy and the remarkable Nikesh Shukla. I've brought you one of your very favorites. It's the magnificent Felicity Ward! Merry Christmas, motherfuckers! How are you going? You good? Guys, I was, uh, I came straight from, uh, I was doing my show at Soho Theatre. What? It sold out. Why'd you bring that up? And. <laughs> Don't worry, I've added an extra show at the Leicester Square Theatre, which is selling like something that doesn't sell well. And so if you are into me, please, all of you, come. It's the 9th of March. Um, this is just a plug because I'm desperate. No, I was, uh, I finished my show and I finished at 8.30 and on the running order, I was supposed to be on at 8.55 and I'm like, guys, I'm going to be a couple of minutes late. They're like, we'll see if we, we can get you. I think we'll be able to get you on. It's 9.50. <laughs> I could have walked and still had some time for a burger. <laughs> but it's lovely to be here. Um, yes, these pants are very tight. I, <laughs> I call these pants too much information. <laughs> you can see everything. What's she saying? Her lips are moving. Anyway, I... <laughs> Oh, gross. Gross. <laughs> yes, move lips, yes. <laughs> Someone was so supportive of my labia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> 
I, um, I didn't get to, I was supposed to be, I was, you know, I wanted to be here at the beginning of the show, so I wrote some of these. Um, I'm a feminist, but I went to get a facial the other day, and, but I was paralysed standing outside of the beautician because I couldn't figure out if a facial was an act of self-care or just succumbing to the patriarchy. <laughs> Very confusing, isn't it? Even more so, I'm a feminist, but I recently got a very big job. It was a very big milestone in my career. It, very, it felt very good as a woman to get that job, and I earned some fucking cash. And, <laughs> and the first thing I did is I went out and I just bought heaps of makeup and sprays. <laughs> some of which I still don't know what they're supposed to do. I'm like, I'm I think this is for the skin. <laughs> Now this one is, I'm a feminist, but, and now you know, I love this podcast. I love everything this podcast stands for. I love Deb. I love you guys. So this pains me to say, I'm a feminist, but I fucking hate the song I Will Survive. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just hate disco, which is ironic given these pants, but I just hate, but the, the thing that you can take away from that is that if you've ever been to another live show and you've seen me on stage in like Instagram videos or whatever, smiling and laughing and dancing and clapping and clicking with the audience, know that I have hated every minute of that and I've just done it for the cause. So I, what I actually wanted to tell you about was I had a moment last week, I had a very feminist moment last week. I was doing a gig at a notoriously blokey venue, but it felt quite prestigious. It always feels prestigious to play there. And in the front row, there was a group of 25 young men. Ugh. And I'm joking, I love men too much, if anything. And um, you can see that from the trousers. And... So the MC that was on, he had a go at one of the boys uh, who was, he was very muscly, had a tight t-shirt and he was drinking rosé. And the MC, he gave him a bit of a ribbing. It wasn't malicious, it wasn't bad, it didn't have bad intentions or anything. It wasn't too humiliating, it was just a bit of a laugh. Anyway, I came out on stage and I like, I gave an exaggerated response and I was like, you drink that rosé, babe. Like, toxic masculinity is bullshit. You do whatever you want. I bet you just love fingering on the weekend. You know, as a feminist act and <laughs> obviously if I had my time again I would say cunnilingus as if you would ever choose fingering over anyway I digress <laughs> come on fingers over a tongue no gracias so so I make this comment about <laughs> I I've never said no gracias before that'll stay I made this flippant comment about fingering and then the rest of the whole male group turn and laugh and point to another guy in the group. And now I don't want to shame him and I don't want to say his name, so for the purposes of this podcast, let's call him John Han. So everyone... <laughs> I make this comment about fingering and then everyone looks at John Hamm and I'm surprised because you'd think that John Hamm would be naturally adept at fingering. But anyway, <laughs> so I went over to him and I said, what's your name? He said, John Hamm. I'm like, obvi. And then <laughs> I said, John Hamm, are you very bad at fingering? I said, are you notoriously bad at fingering? And he said, well, I've heard some stories. <laughs> Apparently so. Now, that gave me pause. Imagine you are so bad at fingering that not only the recipient knows or her 
female friends, because let's be honest, we talk. <laughs> but the male friends of the perpetrator, that's too strong a word. I, <laughs> the the, the digitizer, I don't know. Imagine how bad you need to be to a number of women for all of your mates to find out. Like, it's so heartbreaking. And it, gave, it, it made me feel on the... I think this is a very important issue. And I stand by this as a controversial statement. I said this on the night and I said to him, I do not... This is a controversial. I do not think men should be able to finger women until they're 25 years old. <laughs> that is my rule. Like, watch and learn, by all means. Watch her do a thing, play with yourself, great stuff. But you can't, you can't go in till you're 25. Not with your hands, mate. Apprentice chefs have to wash dishes for years before they're allowed to touch the expensive equipment, you know? And he looked so forlorn and I said, I'm just gonna give you some tips. He's like, please. He said, please. tips that I made on the night and I want to read them. So they're not jokes. It is a public service announcement more than I don't know if there's any straight guys that listen to this, but if they're in here, they're, they're fucking all ears. The same thing happened on the night. All the guys are like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> what was that last thing she said? You, you tell me afterwards. Shut up, you're ruining it. So these are my tips. Number one, Going in and out as hard and fast and long as you can is not enjoyable. It's You're not starting a lawnmower. What are you doing? You don't get points the further back you go. Like some men, it looks like a Guinness World Record attempt. There's nothing waiting for you back there. Spend a lot more time on the outside, guys. A lot more time. Treat the outside as a sometimes food, you know? Like, ow, 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 in, ow, ow, ow. Like, mix it up. In. Like, if you went to see an orchestra, the strings are the foundation, right? Strings are there, every bar, start to finish, pretty, every now and again, timpani. <laughs> fingers on the outside will do a lot more than you think. Honestly, you think, you're like, no, that can't do much. Combo, one finger, two fingers, three fingers, all at once, all at, I'm just, I have a faucet, be soft. Like just play, just not bang, bang, bang. Soft, start as soft as you can. Start as soft, I will say that again. Start as soft as you can. One more time, as soft as you can. I'm getting the light, but I've got three more points, and I'm so sorry. This is an important message, I believe. <laughs> Number four, don't be afraid to use lube. Mate, I used to use lube as a last resort. I thought it was a bit of a defeat. No, mate, lube is a fun park. <laughs> Get it involved. The only thing that lube stops is you from using your mouth. Number five, use your mouth. Use, use your mouth. 
The Fingers and the Mouth is the feel-good movie of the year. <laughs> They're great mates. They help each other out. They cover for the other one. They love working together. And my final tip, and I do genuinely mean this, this is a fail-safe. This will get you, this will get you the best orgasm out of that woman every single time. Ask, are you enjoying this? Is there something else you would like me to do? do know is that all the heterosexual women in the audience are going, ha, 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 yeah, hopefully this works. All the lesbians in the audience just sitting there smoking a fucking cigar with their feet up. <laughs> You've been wonderful. I've been Felicity Ward. Thanks for having me. for sexual practice over that boring bit between Christmas Day and New Year's Day and Felicity Ward has provided a Christmas service <laughs> for heterosexual women everywhere. But what she has done is slandered the name of John Hamm. <laughs> John Hamm knows how to think. Don't give me that sorry mate with that face. You knew what you were doing. You came out here, you slandered John Hamm. <laughs> the Hamm knows what he's doing. He is not ham-fisted. <laughs> I bet you don't, you don't normally do the ham bit. Did you do that for me? She did it for me. And that makes me feel special. We're ready for our big, exciting, all singing, all dancing finish. But before we do, can I just say, we often have a charity of the week. And this week, the charity of the week is the Lyric Hammersmith. That's right, the very building you're sitting in. So would you like to tell us a bit more about it? Welcome everybody. I hope you're having a lovely night here at the Lyric in Hammersmith. Uh, my name's Marilyn and I work in the Young People's Team. We work with schools locally and within our community, but we're also working with our targeted programmes and that's working with people that are newly arrived to the country, refugees, uh, young people in the care system and also young people involved in the criminal justice system. And they come here, they take part in activities. It's about actually giving them a voice where they can actually tell their story and also putting a kind of mirror up to all of these different kind of communities that we're working with. We really need uh, your support in helping that to keep us um, going here. And there's many opportunities to get more involved. Um, you can donate to support our work or you can buy tickets to come and see our shows. Um, all the information is on our website, which is www.lyric.co.uk. And then also we're on all social media platforms. Um, and for all of you guys tonight, we do have buckets on your way out. So if you have any loose change or loose notes or large checks, please do put them in. I and mean, it really will go a long way. So thank you very much. And I hope you're having an awesome time. Uh, which is on here till January 6th. It stars Margaret Cable-Smith, who's done our show a couple of times, and the wonderful Carrie Ed Lloyd, uh, who you also know from The Guilty Feminist, and she is, uh, she's had a terrible week on Twitter. Some of you may have seen the bloody good period situation. She referred to women in this context as bleeders to be inclusive, and some people on Twitter didn't like that. Uh, so if you can give Carrie Ed and bloody good period some support, uh, one way of supporting Carrie Ed is to come right here, and you can also support the Rick Hammersmith and see Dick Whittington, which I believe is a show about a refugee pitching up in London. Uh, trying to make his fortune with only a cat relying on the kindness of strangers. Don't forget to visit the Choose Love shop online, choose.love forward slash guilty feminist. Uh, all right, are we ready to close the show? <laughs> then please, 
Welcome back to the stage uh, to play and sing us out in true anti-fascist Yuletide style. The wonderful Clarissa Land and Grace Petrie! Right, we're going to do... We're going to do the best Christmas song of all time. That's what we're going to do. Um, there's been a lot of debate. Obviously, it's a change in culture. There's been a lot of debate about the language in this song. Um, and, uh, but we, we hope that we've come up with a solution that is going to keep everyone happy. This is Fairtown, New York. It was Christmas Eve, babe. In the drunk tank, an old man said to me, I'll see another one. And then he sang a song, the rare old mountains you, and I turned my face away and dreamed about you. Got on a lucky one. Came in 18 to 1 I've got a feeling This year's for me and you So happy Christmas I love you baby I can see a better time When all our dreams come true Christmas Day. What the fuck you'll be 
and it won't just be me. I think I think everyone's gonna come up for this one. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year older and a new one just begun.
anniversary show. Uh, thank you for sticking with us, growing, telling other people, sharing over the last three years. It's been a really amazing and emotional time. And to have you here as tribe, as army, uh, going forth into the next year, into 2019, means absolutely everything. Uh, let's be together. Let's stay strong. Uh, let's be rebellious. Let's be resilient. And let's be joyful! Woo!